Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of a new show here on Voice of Ashon called Focus On. Let me start quickly by asking you all a question. Have you ever wondered if other people on planet Earth might be doing things a little bit better than we're doing it here at home? And if so, what ideas can we borrow? If you've wondered that, like I have, then this is the perfect show for you. Today I'm talking with Bruno Kaufman, who is joining me from Sweden, I believe, yes? That's right. I mean, following Sweden. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. I ask because you travel so often, and um, so I'm really looking forward to the interview. Um, before we dive in, let me remind my listeners that Focus On is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon broadcast at 11 a.m. on Sundays and 5 p.m. on Fridays here in the Seattle area on 101.9 FM KVSH. Of course, you might be streaming this online right now, and you can check out my podcast at marchtwisdale.com. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We're going to dive into the show with a quick introduction by Bruno. Go ahead and tell my audience a bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, hello. I'm Bruno Kaufman. I'm 51 years old. I'm the father of two daughters, and I'm very much active, let's say, in democracy. I'm promoting democracy. I'm reporting about democracy, and I feel that every citizen on this earth has a responsibility to contribute. So I'm working on that since many, many years. Thank you so much. I um, We met in Portland, and I think you had just flown in from Asia. Is that correct? Yes, I was on a global trip uh, uh, on these issues. I'm covering democracy issues globally for the Swiss broadcasting company, but I'm also uh, supporting activists around the world. So I was just coming from Seoul, Korea, where a lot of things are going on. I was stopping in Hawaii and then I came to Portland where this great conference on media and democracy was taking place. Right, 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 right. Elevate engagement. That was a pretty cool weekend, wasn't it? It was, yes. I was very impressed about all these people really concerned about how can we make media much more of, of a useful party and for, uh, part again for, for society and for democracy. It's a, it's a new way of, of a post-paternalistic society where we as journalists are not, not reporting for the people but with the people. I think that's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Yay. I'm so glad you're on the show. You're going to be awesome. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really quickly before we go forward, I need to remind my listeners that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board, staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Vashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. Thank you for listening. Okie doke. So now that we've heard from the official VOV, POV folks, let us move on. Okay, so we've got, honestly, you have done so much with your life that we're not going to be able to squeeze it all into one hour. But let's go ahead and start off with bringing more people to democracy. You made the point earlier that a lot of people tend to think that democracy as a concept is in crisis or that it's in retreat. And you have a perception that the opposite is happening. Given that people in America tend to only know what American media tells them and that you've been all over the globe, why don't you give us a sense of why you feel democracy is expanding? Yes, I mean, it's because, uh, I mean, many people really follow the media 
uh, official media or, or or the mainstream media seeing that there is a lot of crisis around the world and there are a lot of crises, a lot of terror attacks, a lot of wars. We hear about uh, natural disasters, but what we hear very little about is about what's going on the, on, on, the, on the ground locally around the world. And what I have done in the last 10, 15, 20 years is really traveling the world, meeting people in villages, in cities around the world from Greenland to India, from New Zealand to Northern Norway, and to see how people really locally are engaging in making their societies better, and how this has become a global feature. The good things, all the good promotion about local governments, about local activities, is never reported about. And I think this is very important that as a citizen, we are never a global citizen. We are always a local citizen, but together, worldwide, we can become a global power, and that's very, very encouraging. Right. Right across the water from us is another island called Bainbridge, and they happen to be the home location for a magazine called Yes, Y-E-S, with an, apost- with an exclamation point. Um, and what, what their focus is basically is they said, we're going to only report on the good news. And that doesn't mean la la foo-foo, the world is perfect, nothing's wrong. It means more like, hey, let's look at what this person here is doing and this group there, and how are they making a significant difference? And it sounds like you have a chance to go and explore the something more. Yes, I have understood my journalistic work as a correspondent for the Swiss Broadcasting Company and for other media, always also about not just addressing or looking into problem, but also how different parts, how different people in society, organizations, institutions are dealing with these problems. And in many ways, you can say there are always better or even very good solutions available. I'm, I'm a Swiss-Swedish citizen. And in Switzerland, for instance, we have four times a year nationwide referendums on different issues. And always ahead of these votes, I should report about how is a country like Sweden or Norway dealing with exactly this issue? And of course, when it comes to democracy solutions around the world, it's much bigger than you can see that people in some parts in, in, in India are really, really having solutions which, which haven't come up in a, in a more established democracy or, or new democracies in Asia. They are really powerful in civic education and all these kind of, of issues. So it's really exciting to, to go around and to meet people where they are and to discuss with them and also to encourage them, of course, that most people feel that they are alone where they are and they see the big world as a, as a, as a very uh, dangerous, very uh, a world of, of big powers while they, they don't really can see how, how they, together with other so-called small people around the world, are the real power. Right, right, right. This really ties in with sort of an underlying theme of my novel, uh, well, I have four novels planned out that this theme will run through. Uh, the first one's called The Ghost Lords. But one of the, the sort of the final moment of the fourth book is not to present to my readers problems solved, but to present to the readers that through the recapture of media, global media by the people and the increasing of access to that medium for people-to-people conversation, um, getting rid of some of the obfuscation and the corporate controls that allow media to be used to manipulate us rather than inform us, 
that through that, the people of the world will be able to sort of look at each other and go, oh, okay, now that we're talking clearly to each other, what is it that we want to do here? I'm curious if you have um, witnessed yet or have some ideas around how we can start to get to that point on a global level with their fellow local activists. What are some ideas that you've witnessed around that? I feel that there are, there are so many common features uh, when we we look around the world. Uh, of course, many many things starts with education, uh, many things starts with healthcare, many things starts with uh, uh, local transportation uh, services. I mean, all these kind of everyday concerns we do have as a as a as a human being, they are linked to ways of finding solutions, adapting to the context uh, where different people are in. I mean, if you are in, in Greenland, you need other solutions than you need in, in Portugal. The issue or the key to everything is how can we together be involved and take responsibility to find these solutions? Because so much in today's world is seen as a, a stage where a few protagonists are playing the game, are giving the, the orders, are, are ruling the world, uh, again, from business leaders to big uh, organizations, NGOs, to world-known media and, of course, uh, political leaders. But most people, of course, are outside this world but they are, in fact, in many ways on the center stage, but they don't really understand it and they are not really informed and engaged on it. And there need to be a, a new kind of partnership between local governments and this kind of people, because as Benjamin Barber, uh, the, the late political scientist from, from Berkeley, uh, wrote in a book just a few years ago, if mayors would rule the world, we would have a much better world. And he tried uh, until his death uh, this uh, spring to create something like a world parliament of mayors and local government people. And I think this is quite a, quite a forward-looking way of going into this a little bit less ideological, a little bit more pragmatic way of, of solving problems together with the people and by the people. Okay, so like all these thoughts are flying through my head and probably all my listeners are having thoughts in their heads too. And I keep trying to think what are the best questions to ask that my listeners might be themselves asking that I ask. <laughs> like, please, March, ask this question next. So I think it's been a, a question for a while. People have been scratching their heads and saying, you know, what can we do to infuse people in America with a sense that it's worth their time to pay attention to their local politics? I'm curious what thoughts you have in places in the world where people are engaging with their local government and feel like it has value to do so, where they're paying attention to the local politics as much as the national. What do you find specific about those cultures Yes, I mean that's that you you named um, the the word culture, and I mean it's it's a lot about culture, the culture of of, of conversations, the culture of politics, the culture of democracy, which is uh, more or less existing uh, in 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 a local, in a state level, or in a national level, and it's it's very clear to me that there is a lot of of very brave people uh, also in America doing a lot of good things on the local level, but. Uh, the disturbance of, uh, let's say, public conversations tending to be, be very confrontational and the brutality of the public sphere as such is not very much 
uh, welcoming this kind of of, of local local culture of democracy. It's it's in a way a, a, a contrary that you need to be against each another to be in favor of something, and that's that's different. I would say in countries where there is no disturbance of being a superpower, where small state, small country understanding creates some humbleness, which is useful in in putting instead energy on ambitious projects for for local and regional solutions. So, I mean, it's really a, something which doesn't is very very helpful. And uh, you could even say that a, a country like Germany, who who really is a big power now, but which have experienced the disastrous. Uh, aspects of being a superpower and doing harm to so many people around the world that mm-hmm. uh, their local politics have really become after reunification in 1990 uh, become a, a powerhouse of, of of great ways and solutions so i'm very pleased to see for instance how germany have developed in the last 25 years after reunification and not gone into this trap like you see in Russia or like you see in China or in the US partly to play this ugly game of of, of world police or world domination and instead uh, losing much of the real power on the local level and regional level. So so there is a big risk, I think, also for democracy in America to to really lose that because there you have the energy, there you have the potential, there you have the opportunities for reform. Right, 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 right. Okay. So it's one of the things that I experienced when I came back home. uh, The first time I went to Denmark, I went to just Denmark for 17 days. And I came home. And it was interesting when I was there, for example, for 17 days, I never saw um, a single police officer or police car. I don't know what the Danish police uniform even looks like. Mm -hmm. And when I was there by halfway through my trip, it hit me that I hadn't seen that. And it made me reflect on Seattle, which is the biggest city near where I live. And it really cast an interesting light upon Seattle because it reminded me of just how heavy the police force um, is in Seattle. Basically, if you're walking around for about two or three minutes, you're going to see a police car or police officers on bicycles, or they're going to walk by or ride a horse by, basically. And about two or three minutes later, you're going to see another pair. So you have a constant police presence, whereas I went 17 days, of course, and saw nothing. And then you have, there's like six or seven homeless cities in Seattle right now. Every bridge has homeless people underneath it. Every cluster of trees. There's, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, oh my gosh, it's so different than it was 20 years ago. So... I came home with sort of this this sense of how different it was. And I started talking to people about, hey, you know, if they're doing these things in Denmark, then we can do them here. You know, basically per capita, we have we have the same, you know, income level, blah, blah, blah. We, we should be able to do what they're doing. And everybody I talked to um, said, those are small countries. We're a big country. So we're too big. We can't do that. They're small. That's why it works. And in a way, I wonder if it's realistic for countries, because the three you named that are involved in global power, lots of war, lots of aggression, they're all really big, you know, Russia, China, United States. And it almost seems like because we feel in America like we have this big national image, 
it makes us forget perhaps that the people in the Pacific Northwest have some really shared values that are based upon the environment we live in, the place we live in, the weather systems we endure, the attitudes of the people here. And the people in the South have their own particular cultural uniquenesses. And I'm wondering whether it might be possible that humans simply thrive better in smaller um, constructs than they do in really, really large ones. Yes and no. I mean, uh, yes, obviously, you could say that um, the close relationship between uh, where you are and where you have a say or and where you have a possibility to, to make an impact is important while in, in, in it's very hard to do the same thing when it comes to, to high-level uh, powers, to, to remote, uh, excluded uh, leadership circles. You see that everywhere. I mean, uh, in Russia, uh, after the crisis of the 1990s, all local democracy were basically abolished as a first step to basically abolish uh, the nationwide democratic structure and to make almost a one-party state. I mean, in China, this 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 has never changed after 1945, and and yet in in US you have a lot of local communities which are very powerful, but. This excuse, you can say, this excuse of saying we are a big country or a small country, that's the reason why it's much harder. This is, of course, a totally wrong excuse. It has nothing to do with the size as such. It has to do with the capacity of society to, to, to bring solutions and to uh, have concern about those who are the weaker side. In a way, I feel sometimes that, that in, in America, there is an idea that you need to have losers in order to be to, to, to be really on the, on, on the happy side that you feel that you are not those losers. You can be on the, somewhere on the, on the way forward. And, and this is differently seen, you can say, especially in the Nordic welfare states where the idea of, of having people on the street is, is quite something unfamiliar and unacceptable. So people are very much concerned about solidarity. I mean, we, we had in 2015 here, in Sweden, we got uh, in in a couple of months about 50 times as much refugees as as the US and Canada took together from Syria, and these people uh, uh, came to Sweden in big numbers. And of course, there were many people who were very much against this openness. But most people, I would say, were very much concerned about how can we help these people. And I've seen so many great local villages, towns around Sweden, who have really welcome these people and make them their their neighbors and and close to their families open their houses so a lot of solidarity with people who have a really hard uh, hard destiny and not seeing them uh, in the first hand as as potential terrorists so this this was a a great experience of that um, there is a, a feeling of of solidarity even with people you don't know Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to take a quick break here to do a station identification, and then we're going to come back. Um, if you're just joining us, this is March Twisdell, producer and host of Focus On. And today I'm having a great time talking with Bruno Kaufman. Before we return to the interview, I'd like to give a shout out to some of the folks that keep Voice of Vashon on the air. Support for this program comes from DR Design Studio your Vashon Island architectural design service specializing in green design solutions for new homes and remodels. Serving Vashon for nearly 20 years at drdesignstudio.com. 
com. Support for this program also comes from Airlift Northwest, providing life-saving air medical transport 24 hours a day in our community and throughout the region. For more information, visit uwmedicine.org forward slash airlift dash NW. Okie doke. So back to the interview. Um, Bruno, you were just reminding me of why I'm doing this radio show and why I am reaching out to people who live in Northern European countries. Across the board, pretty much everyone I've talked to who has lived and grown up in your culture, the Scandinavian culture, including Iceland, there seems to be a real authentic individual personal sense of dismay at the idea of people being homeless or not being able to go to the doctor. It's like there's a real sense of shock. Whereas we may not like it, well, you know, that's the way the system works. I mean, a lot of times parents have a real sense of fear that their child is going to become one of the losers. That very much is a part of the culture because if your kid doesn't go to college or be lucky or meet the right people or get the right job, then he or she may end up being the necessary, required, low-income, unhappy losers of society, which allow for the upper-income, happy people to be here. And that that doesn't have to be how we look at things. Yeah, it's, a very, it's a very difficult question, of course, when you feel that things are, in a way, happening without you having any chance of or any experience uh, problem solution maybe in the past or uh, currently that you feel really powerless uh, towards these uh, powerless people and i would say there are two two approaches to that one is is clearly that uh, in certain societies you have had i i would also call it the privilege to live in a society where uh, coming from a very let's say a poor background, you have experienced that by solutions, communal, uh, uh, common solutions of social cohesion, you can really bring a society forward. And this is very much the, the Nordic experience. I mean, just under 100 years of time to become from extremely remote, peripheric, poor agricultural part of, 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 of Europe to, to become one of the wealthiest because, and I would say only because, that people really have stick their heads together and overcome different kind of of religious cultural differences to find common solutions and in that way seeing every individual as a of the common sphere and on the other side of course to accept um, that uh, everybody of us can be a loser at some point is it economically is it uh, by health, but also in, in politics and democracy, that you don't have to win only. Not only the winners are are those who make history, but also those who are losing a certain decision or a certain situation. I would say a, a good democracy is a, a a society of happy losers, where everybody can lose be, without losing really its dignity and its potential and possibility to 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 do something different in the future and to maybe convince others on what he or she thinks so so a society of happy happy losers that's in a way my my humble vision i would like to contribute to right 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 and you specifically have a youtube video about that idea of happy losers correct 
That's right. It's a it's a it's a TED talk I had in in Spain, Catalonia, about two years ago, where I described one of my key experiences as a young person in Switzerland, in fact, where I I was the coordinator of a citizen initiative, uh, where we proposed, in fact, the a nationwide vote on abolishing the Swiss Army, mm. uh, which was at that time one of the biggest armies in, in Europe, about 10% of the people were in the army. And we really radically asked for abolishing that. And we lost the vote. We uh, got about 36% of the vote, but we were winning because nobody would have expected that we, we would get such a debate, such a discussion, such a, a changing way of thinking about security and military stuff. So we were really, really happy losers. And that was a basic experience for me that, in politics and democracy, you need just all these possibilities to make your voice heard, and you don't need to win a vote in order to be happy. Well, that's sort of like how I felt about Bernie Sanders um, and his, you know, attempt to become the Democratic Party candidate for the presidency, blah, 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 was that there, there were a lot of people who really had a sense of it's win or lose, either we're going to fully win or we have completely lost. And I just remember thinking, are you kidding? We have, we have achieved so much, even though he didn't end up getting on the ballot or getting into the White House. Mm. I mean, America was changed dramatically and huge strides forward were achieved. So I felt like a happy loser, but a lot of people didn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really the activity. I mean, it's the experience of of doing something which is useful and understanding that your activity and your contribution makes sense to others and to yourself and to enter into this dialogue of not just talking to others, but also listening to others. I think this is the most powerful interaction in society available. And this makes people so much, let's say, happy without necessarily being the 50.1% in the end. Right, right, right. Now, one of the things that happens um, a lot of times, and I, I'm, I'm going to come back, I think, to Switzerland on this one, which you grew up in Switzerland, but currently live in Sweden. Is that correct? That's right. I, uh, I have about half of my life, I lived in Switzerland, half of my life in Sweden, and about another half outside Boscombe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go third, third, third on that. Okay, so um, so you talked about the strong sense of sort of um, independence in both of those countries as far as individuals feeling um, comfortable with their individuality and valuing their individuality. And then at the same time, you spoke about the necessity, for example, in Sweden and some of the more northern countries of having to come together over the past century in order to achieve really positive and phenomenal strides forward through true unity in a way, not perfect paradise unity. We're not talking, you know, foo-foo stuff here. But the reality is that while we in America might call ourselves the United States, we were lacking a little bit in actual unity in some ways. And so I'm curious, what do you see as being the way for people in Switzerland, Sweden, other places to feel on a personal level that they're very independent and that they haven't been co-opted by their society, but also being able to engage in a very cohesive way with their 
society for shared goals. What, what do you think it is that's allowing those two things to meld? Because Americans are told endlessly by talking heads, we're talking constantly that it's, it's one or the other. You can be independent in America or you can go live in a nanny state where everyone tells you what to do all the time and you have no, no individuality. That's this extreme impression that's offered to the American public. What can you say mm. to that? And it's, it's, it has a lot to do clearly with, with uh, being rooted in a place um, that can be historically back. I mean, for instance, I grew up in a small city uh, in Switzerland, which had been its own independent state for many hundred years. And my basically my parents moved from another city 15 kilometers or 10 miles away uh, where my ancestors lived for 600 years. So being very much rooted and nobody question you where you're from and and what we are doing here so it's an easy it's a it's a privileged way of 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 growing up while of course it became very quickly very small to me and certain solutions uh, based on this on these historic traditions haven't been very modern but what we can say at the same time in in modern societies as such is really combining this this way of of identity with uh, with being rooted on a place again i mean there i think the local uh, attachment the local identity can be quite quickly established when you live on a place not just as a economic being or as a individual in a family but part of a local community that you can influence you can take share you can learn but this cre- requires also i would say infrastructure for participation and that's something which very often is underestimated that we we i mean we are investing enormous amounts into security into police into army but very little into uh, infrastructure for participation and this needs to be done profoundly differently in the future in order to safeguard a lot of the great achievements we have through our democracies. And I, I, I experience very often in the US that there is a lot of uh, readiness to, to engage, but there is so little of, of, of infrastructure left. I mean, uh, schools are are getting weaker. Local, I mean, public transportation becomes weaker. I mean, all these investments done maybe in the 60s, 70s, they are not there anymore. And today, uh, much of the money I mean, for me, always the, the information that in California you invest more into prisons than into universities today is, of course, a sign of a big, big crisis in a, in a modern society. I really like the point you made, which was fascinating for me, very relevant, where you talked about the sense of place and yet also that it felt very small to you eventually. And, you know, I mean, my kids, I intentionally brought them to this island when they were three and six and wanted to give them a chance to grow up in the same place because I moved constantly as a child and never, never had really a home base. Mm. And yet what I've discovered now, almost 13 years later, is that if you are in one place for that long, you get to a point where you almost have that sense of been there, done that many, many times, what is there to do that's new? And now you want to go out into the world and experience new things. So it really is sort of fascinating that pull between if I stick around long enough, I'll make my connections. But at the same time, wow, I've been here a long time. It's getting a little boring. So your daughter, I believe, who's 19 is 
leaving and is heading uh, to another country, right? That's right. She moves in two days' time to Lisbon, Portugal. Right. Okay. So is she having that same sense that you had in Switzerland? Now she feels like been in Sweden for a long time, want to go do something new and interesting? Yes, that, you can say that. I mean, she, she basically um, grew up in, in Falun, in the city of 50,000. Uh, we live since, yeah, since they started school and uh, where we also felt it's it's good to be on a place as a child to, to really grow up, to go to the school and to, 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 to learn about about many things in a, in a more quiet way and not moving around. I mean, she feels really that there is such a big, nice world outside, not only nice, but also interesting world. And of course, we traveled a lot with the family. We have done three around the world trips during their lifetime. So they are, uh, she's very, she's very conscious about that. And now for the first time, she can do that on her own. And uh, she's just so, uh, so curious about about all these 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 ways to live in big cities. So she will, as she studies uh, studies writing at distance at the university here in Sweden. She she will be in Lisbon first, then in Paris, then in Rome, and then in London to get. Yeah, she's just open to the world, and that's of course a very exciting moment uh, for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I mean, she it's 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 it's. It's, it's it's a privilege, of course, to be able to do that in that way, and to be to be quite certain that you you don't need to. I mean, you don't have to rush to a to a to a paid job. You can do different things. You can you can just develop your capacities in a in a very very free and self determined way. That's 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 great. Mm-hmm. Now you're in Sweden right now, which is part of the EU. I heard recently, and this surprised me, um, that Switzerland is not part of the EU. Is that true? That's right. We uh, in Switzerland, uh, we are in the middle of Europe. <laughs> we are uh, more European than most European countries. But uh, due to the fact, you can say that Swiss, uh, the Swiss federal state is, is 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 established in such a different way than the European federal state that Switzerland really don't feel that um, it's it's the most the most efficient way of joining uh, the rest of Europe by being member of it. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have discussions about that, but many people uh, a little bit, of course, it's also a little bit the feeling of uh, of we are better than the rest of Europe. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's a, yeah, it's a little bit the. Uh, the the the, uni, the the feeling of uniqueness, which which can also be a problem. I mean, we have that also here in Sweden, uh, and based on the fact that there hasn't been a, a war in this country for two hundred years, that you feel just that you are for everything you have the best solution. So there is a a certain amount of of looking down to others, uh, as they have had much more problems. But it's also, I mean, today many people understand you have to interact. I mean, both Switzerland and Sweden are, for instance, part of most European treaties and, and pacts. And Switzerland has an open border. Uh, you don't need to show a passport coming to Switzerland. So, so mm. Switzerland is very much a part of the EU without being a member of the European Union. So do you think that being up in the Swiss Alps um, has had like a geographical impact that perhaps it was just harder to be invaded, you know, in the past and that you guys have been somewhat protected by the mountains? Not the mountains. There has there has in, in history in the medieval times, Switzerland was really a poor place in the middle of Europe without any natural resources, 
very hard to conquer, very hard to to do something with. So Switzerland was not really interesting or attractive enough during a long time. At the same time, uh, the only Swiss export was uh, were soldiers because mm. Swiss guys were very strong, and you still have the the Swiss guard in the in the Vatican in Rome. So that's the the long term heritage of that. But since you can say. Last year in Switzerland, it was a celebration that the last war Switzerland was fighting with somebody else was 500 years ago. So, of course, this is a very different identity than the identity I experience in, in the US, where basically uh, every soldier is seen as a as a fighter for world freedom uh, values and all this graveyards around and all this veteran stuff. I mean, this is just not existing in Switzerland. Interesting. And yeah, right, right. I know our, our history informs who we are to such a great degree, which makes it so sad that history is so, I think it's intentionally taught in a way to make it a miserable subject. Because if people understand history, then they're far more aware and less easily manipulated. I think if history was taught in the fascinating, exciting, interesting, and amazing way it could be taught, that we would have a lot right there, a really good increase in education and aware populace. Sure. I mean, that's uh, especially if you if you feel yourself that you can be a, a part of history, you can make history by your action, that, that gives a very different um, experience. And that's, um, I mean, traditionally, of course, history have been taught as something which is like a performance by the few and the many are just observers and this has a lot to do with our uh, relatively still very weak democracies around the world i mean uh, having the idea that at some point in history 250 years ago there were uh, fathers of constitutions and solutions for all for the future has nothing to do with the realities we need I mean, we need basically every day to reinvent our societies and democracies. And this can only be done with the people who are living now here and with us and uh, by by yourself. Right, 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 right. And each individual is so valuable and so often underestimates that. Yes, absolutely. But you see also, I mean, that's again, that's what we talked about in the beginning. I mean, really being um, able to, to watch a little bit out to see how how people are fighting, acting and struggling. In, in fact, in reality, the narratives we have from all sides are just not so covering really the realities of, of so many people concerned about their lives and their communities and doing so great contributions to a better future. Absolutely. So I need to do one more quick station identification, folks, just to make sure you know where you are and who you're listening to. If you're listening in your car right now, perhaps you're sitting in the ferry line on Friday evening between 5 and 6 p.m. You are listening to March Twisdale producer and host of Focus On on Voice Vashon. And if you're listening on your computer, then you are probably picking me up at marchtwisdale.com. So Voice Vashon is supported by various groups within our island community. 
KVSH program support in particular is provided by Dental Care of Vashon. Whether you're suffering from tooth or gum discomfort, damaged or missing teeth, sleep issues, or are in need of crowns or dental implants, Dr. Demova's team at Dental Care of Vashon will bring you relief and renewed confidence in a comfortable, caring environment. At 206 463 9115 or go to com. KVSH program support also comes from Quartermaster Cottage, where the harbor view showcases each season from the front deck. The spacious interior is always bright, and the location offers access to island activities as well as relaxing walks on the beach. Open year-round at QuartermasterCottage.com. If there's not something that you specifically want to talk about that, you've, that you're right now thinking, ooh, we need to go here, I was thinking we would discuss a little bit more about media and some of the specific work you've done in city government. Do you have something else you'd like to add to that? No, I mean, that's, that's for me really the, 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 the media and, and, and local government. These are, these are two key, key features I, I have worked for all my life and uh, being engaged in where I feel that the, the, the relationship between being a, just a citizen, a member of a family, a father, feels really uh, being very relevant, that you, that you have conversations uh, in public uh, informed uh, uh, conversations, uh, educated uh, conversations, there the media plays such an important role, and where where we feel that it needs to be something in the in the hands of of, of ourselves, uh, in the hands of the citizens. So I see, of course, that there are good opportunities now through the technological innovations, the developments that that it's much a much more democratized media is 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 possible, but. As, as usual, of course, there is a is a is a is a is a fight for power. It's a fight for influence, and there is also a fight for for many bad aspects of it by by trying to to undermine truths and by uh, trying to to really uh, make people uh, full of hate to, towards others. So so in a way, we have to challenge that that the much better opportunities we have for democracy are also its worst enemy because. Of course, those who are not really sharing these values of, uh, of a modern democracy, they have also better opportunities to make their voices heard. Right, 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 exactly. So, um, of course, there is the ideal of what journalism should do and people who go to school in order to get degrees, in order to work in this field, are trained up in the standard ideas of how journalism should happen and the ethics and the values. And then we have reality. <laughs> and we have, you know, the play between the newsroom, um, which used to have a major firewall between the newsroom and some of the economic aspects. And now, from what I understand, that firewall is dissolving. In a way, we're in the middle of a huge kerfuffle. And I'm wondering two things about media. One is, how is the organization that you work for, how are they dealing with that that new um, economic strain that's created by so much free news on the internet. The other question I have for you is people talk about these two concepts. They call, they talk about fake news and they talk about alternative facts. Mm. 
Yeah, big issues. I mean, it's clear that the, the term alternative facts, which was launched after the inauguration of, uh, of uh, Mr. Trump, uh, was one way of this kind of quick fix explanation, which so many people try to, to go for because they have no good explanations. They have not really facts to deliver. So they just say this is an alternative fact and everything goes. Everything can say what he or, or, or she wants. So so this is clear that this kind of, of boiling down to, to, to easy uh, uh, two-liners, this, this is, as you have said, this is a, an enemy of, of good media, of good journalism, of good conversations. And I, I would say it's a... It's a very short-sighted uh, way of trying to to bring maybe your own people into line and and feeling that you have a, a, a good answer to hard questions. But in the in the longer term, of course, it it doesn't really give you the crown to go forward. And I think that's that's the good thing of all of that that you feel that this this kind of of very very extreme ways of trying to to I would say gerrymander truths into your own field this is uh is this like bad advertisement it's not really uh, it's maybe short-sighted uh, you get you get some attention but not all attention in the future will be good attention so i'm still thinking about uh, that uh, a solid journalistic work which is based on on really understanding some conversations not on that somebody is right and somebody is wrong, but you can have an exchange on it. You can really give you some time of reflection. This this will be much more uh, the way forward to, uh, in a way, consolidate or to uh, reconcile great ideas of society, of democracy, and on the other side, the harsh realities we are into. So you have a space. As we discussed before, there's a pole between being local and going out to the world. These spaces we need to we need to enjoy. We need to see them as the spaces of action, and we don't need to know exactly what's right and wrong. But we have to have a conversation on it, and that's that. I feel in politics uh, we are in a situation where try to think that if you go around that and just offer your facts, your solution, you you will be the winner. But I'm not sure that this will be the case. What's interesting in America is that there tends to be um, people tend to forget the purpose of the free press. Um, you know, freedom of speech is is this idea that everyone will just spit out as this founding fundamental aspect of our country, and da 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 da. And then you have to ask them like, why? Why did the founders, founding families of the United States of America, you know, why did they value free speech? Was it just because they wanted everyone to be able to say whatever they wanted to say? Or was it because they recognized that the free press and the ability to report on things that were not popular in the eyes of those already established into power was what allowed the revolution to even happen? And so that fourth you know, the fourth pillar of democracy is that we have this watchdog element going on. And so what I find interesting is that when they brought the term fake news and they, they, they created that term and they spit it out into media conversation, into society, it ended up 
um, one of the functions it serves is that when people hear information being reported by um, investigative journalists or information that they generally don't agree with, they now will look at it and go, well, that's fake news. Instead of saying, well, that's an interesting news story. I wasn't aware of that perspective. I'm not sure I believe it. I'm going to go do some research. Maybe it's not quite right. Instead of talking like that, they say, oh, that's fake news. And once you've put the label fake news on something, then it just becomes discounted. Mm. It's almost like being turned into a way of for there to be peer-to-peer censorship of information. Label it fake news, and then you shame people for reading it or listening to it or paying attention to it. Mm. And so, right? And so the question is, how do we get people to realize news is news, information is information, some of it may be more or less accurate or factual, but fundamentally there's not a reason to get knee-jerk freaked out, upset, or, or, or frightened of it, you just come to the table and go, oh, well, I went over here and did my research and I have some questions for you. Can you explain this or that? For mm. me, I find it very easy to have an objective view of all sorts of topics. And yet I'm surrounded by a society where when I was in Denmark watching the news and I don't speak Danish, so I have no idea what they were saying, what I immediately noticed was that they let people finish talking. Mm. Someone would be sitting there at their table and you know on the TV screen, and they would say something to someone else, and that person would start to answer the question, and they would go on and on for like five or six or eight minutes. And then when they were done talking, and there was a pause, someone else mm. would say something. In American media and our culture, someone will ask a question, someone starts answering within 30 seconds, they've been cut off, interrupted, or talked over. Mm. It's like a battle rather than a listening conversation. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's always, of course, a little bit a, it's a risk that you see what you know very, very much yourself in, in this, let's say, negative uh, uh, lines that you see what's not good and then you go to another place and you feel this is different. And I, I wouldn't see it as, 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 as um, again, as black and white. I mean, mm-hmm. we have these kind of shows, TV shows, of course, in the Nordic countries as well, where you are not allowed to talk to the mm-hmm. point and where you get these 30 seconds and very aggressive ways of, of moderators. Uh, while um, I would say, I mean, I'm, every time I'm in the U.S., I'm very impressed about uh, how so many radio stations, how people really listen to radio also. I mean, mm. that may have to do that people sit a lot in their cars and cannot watch <laughs> watch their mobile phones. But in a way, radio plays a, an important role and it, it plays a little bit, uh, maybe less of a role when you when you don't commute so far and you just watch your, your iPhone or or, or, or telephone for, for, for pictures and some, some, some movies. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, this idea, what we see is, is a battle between, you can say, the understanding and you, you were talking about the founding fathers of uh, promoting really free speech and free press. I mean, it's the time where enlightenment came to, to modern societies uh, together with the idea of human rights. So it's not just a, I mean, the idea of that democracy is more than just majority rule, 
or tyranny of the majority. This, 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 this was really uh, surfaced at that time and it had such a hard time. And today it's, it's more of a universal value. But again, the, the big idea is there. The global idea of all that is there, but the realities are so harsh. So, so, so it's, it's easy to, to, to feel a little bit uh, frustrated and to feel that distance to, to these ideals is so huge. And you see all those who try to, to use their powers to really contract. And, and we see a backlash. We see a backlash not only in the United States, we see it in Europe, we see it in, in Sweden, that you have people who really just because they they feel so unsure or they feel that they have a possibility of getting power, they address all the the, the, the simplistic, uh, uh, nationalistic, primitive uh, attitudes of people, which we all have, that the fears, the, 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 the feeling of we need to protect another from others and, and that the, the, the weakest are the most dangerous ones. All this is, is around. And, and there, of course, we have this huge battle about the public space, about, uh, about, about supporting uh, infrastructure for democracy. I, 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 I really have this, this conviction that we need to invest much more into, into our libraries, into our uh, schools, into our public uh, infrastructure. In Sweden today, in fact, all local councils, all local and regional parliaments of the states together and the political parties, they have not more money together in one year than we invest into one air fighter for the Swedish army. So so you see the relationship in investment between this kind of traditional militaristic top-down uh, autocratic ideas and the more democratic openness ones is still very much not in the favor of the democracy. So, so that gives us also a lot of opportunities to do better, to do more, and to really convince ourselves that we has to, have to invest into this kind of future and not into trying to, to, to destroy other countries. Well, so let's finish a little bit then with um, your experience. I believe it was on this, basically, you were working in city government. What exactly was is your position? Yes, I was in the last seven years member here in Falun, Sweden, in the city government. I was responsible. Uh, we have nine councillors in executive, uh, the executive role. I was responsible for everything related to democracy, to uh, citizen participation, to civic education and to elections. So my field was really to develop the city into a democracy city. And we have, uh, we have done quite a lot. And I have felt that the strategy, the long-term strategy to do that, including all nine parties we have in local government, uh, we have created a, a strategy, a platform for it, which which now, when I, I will quit this job now and, uh, and focus on my journalistic political work, you can say, around the globe, I hope and I am convinced that this will continue because what was crucial in it, it wasn't majority here, against minority, every decision we made in my committees and my commission was in consensus, and that was very important. Oh, wow, you guys use consensus. Yeah, not for everything, but for this kind of issues, I felt it was extremely important because otherwise it's easy for for one or two parties just to, to go ahead against and saying in the future, we were never on this line. 
Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I spent a number of years um, facilitating um, a large group that used 100% consensus for all decisions. It was fascinating the level of buy-in that you got and the willingness to... Um, what I find interesting here in our state government is... Um, in we have like a three month set month session January February March goes into April sometimes, and by the time you show up in Olympia and you want to talk to people about what they're proposing for legislation, no one is in the position of yeah we really want to amend this or change this. They're pretty much in the position of we thought about it on our own during the fall and the early winter, and now we're here to get it passed, and we're gonna fight tooth and nail to get it passed and we don't have time to hear your concerns and to change it or amend it or alter it even if it would become better in the process we're we're just we're stuck with what we have and so there's there's really a lack of consensus happening around here in some ways and that's so cool so you were able to successfully use consensus within a government system and it was effective and it worked Yes, I mean effectiveness is of course uh, a question of how 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 long you look into the future. I mean, certain people here around me would say it's a slow process. It takes so much time, and the benefits of it are not really seen for most people yet. But having the understanding why we do it uh, today, most. Uh, people would say this is the way forward, and this can also be a model for others. So, so, so really, I'm I, I'm I'm convinced that, that this is the right way to go when it comes to these kind of issues, because democracy is not just built for the until the next election. It's really something which has to be built for generations ahead. Right. So, what do you think is one of the number one things that um, human beings can do when it comes to engaging with their local government? We're going to end on that question. It's clear that uh, you need first to know uh, uh, which kind of local government you have, which issues are there, because certain so many people sometimes misunderstand on which level decisions are taken. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, first, this under this understanding of what the local government means in your case is very important. Then second step is to see which kind of tools uh, do you have, uh, which kind of support can you can you get, and and thirdly, of course, get active, get really out your word, get into conversations, and don't just understand yourself as a consumer of of politics and democracy, you're a producer, you're a co-producer, and this implies also responsibilities of respect and 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 really not only talking, but also uh, listening to others. And through these small kind of steps, I think you, you have a lot of opportunities to make a difference and to really take your responsibility as an active citizen. Thank you very much, Bruno. Thank you. All right. So, folks, you've been listening to my interview with Bruno Kaufman. He has a website, which is Bruno Kaufman, is spelled K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N.com. That website has been sort of on hold a little bit while he's been um, serving in local government, but it's going to be coming on board really soon. Another place you can check out some of Bruno's writings and contributions to the conversation would be people to power.info and that's what the number two so people number two power.info 
And so, yep, we're pretty much out of time. I would like to thank you all for joining me today on Focus On. I hope if you're listening on a Friday evening that I've made your commute and your ferry wait a little bit better. Focus On is designed to allow all of us to contemplate new ideas and ask more creative questions about what is possible in the world. Many thanks go to Windermere Vashon for it is their generosity that has given me the opportunity to create this show. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Bruno Kaufman here on Focus On where my guests share how they hope to see the world change for the better, one shared idea at a time.